Thanks for joining us. Uh, many of you are joining us online. Thank you. And uh, we're glad we can be a part together to consider God's Word. So back in the day, I was a senior in college last semester, and I had worked on an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering, and my idea was I was going to go get a master's in business administration. And I'd worked and gotten pretty good grades, and foolishly applied to many of the elite schools across the country. And so, kind of towards first semester and into second semester, my answers came in, and the first answer was no. Second answer was no. Third answer was, are you seeing a pattern here? No. Finally, I got down to my last option. It was the University of Texas. It was kind of the, the regional school, the elite school, at least in the Southwest. And the answer to that one was, what do you think? It was a no. <laughs> I was an offer. And I had spent three and a half years on this plan, working out this deal, and I was staring rejection and failure right in the face. Well, Andy, what happened? I'll get back to that later in the sermon so you can't leave. You, you, you'll want to know what happened. So I will get back to that later in the sermon. But I share that to say, I think all of us have faced that kind of failure, that kind of rejection. And it can seem like it is the end. But for God, it's just the beginning. So I want to talk about what's our hope in the failure face of failure and rejection. So if you've got a Bible, if you open it to Exodus chapter 2, as I said, we're going to go all the way through this chapter, wrestling with that question, what's our hope in the face of failure and rejection? Now, if you were here with us last week, you know that Israel as a nation is facing extinction. A generation earlier, they had followed Joseph, God had miraculously interpreted some dreams, and Joseph had been the number two person that led Egypt through a famine, in fact, led the world, and because of that, Israel had favor, but a new Pharaoh came, and he was very suspicious of these foreigners. And so they are, first they faced uh, enslavement, and then genocide, and that's where we pick it up. Uh, the goal was to, uh, to exterminate these people. So chapter 2, verse 1 says this, that now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. Man and woman from the tribe of Levi get married. Why does the author care about this kind of detail? Well, later, Israel's going to take the promised land. There's 12 tribes of Jacob, 12 sons. 11 of those tribes will get an inheritance. The 12th, the Levites, will not. Because God said, you're going to serve me as a priest. And I'm going to provide for you through the offerings of the people. Well, we're going to meet in this chapter, we're going to meet a baby named Moses. Moses is going to be raised up by God to a position where he serves as a prophet and a priest. And so God is in the details. Even before the Levites are designated as the tribe of priests, Moses is born into that family because he will serve that function both as prophet and priest. So uh, this couple is married. It says the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw him, that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Why would you hide your child? Because the order is if a Jewish boy is born, you throw him in the Nile, you drown him. So she thinks she ought to hide him. That's a good idea. But if you've had a little boy, you know at some point that's not going to work. You've got to find a, a, another way, and so she does. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds 
by the bank of the Nile. I guess putting it by the Nile, the, the roar of the river hopefully would cover his cries. It's a kind of an inconspicuous place. You wouldn't look for a baby there. We don't know if this was a 24-7 hiding place, but it was certainly a place. But that baby was never out of sight. Verse 4, his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Well, what is going to happen to him? Well, here's what happens. Verse 5 and 6. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and opened the boy. And behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, there is one of the Hebrews' children. Remember, this is the daughter of Pharaoh. What's Pharaoh's edict if you discover a, a Jewish boy? Pitch him in the Nile. But she can't do that. She's moved by pity. So, down comes the sister. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Oh, hey, what happened about the edict to throw Jewish boys into the Nile, to drown them? Think about it. Who better to violate the edict of Pharaoh than Pharaoh's daughter? Oh, daddy's so cute. Can't we just keep him? Okay. In the sovereignty of God, she ends, he ends up in her hands, and he is raised in Pharaoh's household, with all the education and cultural understanding that comes with that. That'll be a deal. That'll matter after some years. So Pharaoh, I'm sorry, Moses lived in this dichotomy. He is Jewish by descent, right? make no doubt about it. But culturally, he's Egyptian. Verse 11, now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So what does he do? Verse 12. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Killed him. He's standing up for his people. They've been afflicted. This is probably unjust. It's probably unfair. At least he perceives it that way. He takes it things into his own hands. You'd think he'd be a hero. Verses 13 and 14, he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Perhaps they resent him. He's one of us, but he's grown up in privilege. Are you intended to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? The Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. Years later, like 12 to 1400 years later, Jesus is born. He spends 30, 33 years on earth. He's crucified. He raised, um, raises from the dead, spends 40 days on earth, ascends into heaven, and the church is born amid controversy. 
And in that first generation church, there was a guy named Stephen, and Stephen dared to speak the truth to the Jewish leadership called the Sanhedrin. And his point was simply this, you guys, we have a history of defying God. And you're following that in rejecting Jesus. And so he gave you a long diatribe about the history of the nation of Israel. And doing that, he touched on this very incident, what Moses did in striking down the Egyptian. And, and he makes this comment, Acts 7, 24 and 25. And when he, this is Stephen speaking, talking about Moses. When Moses saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. They don't get it. Somehow they got this warped view that Moses is making a power play or something. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from his presence, the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. You know what Moses is now? He's a fugitive. He's on the run. And he runs about 200 miles as the crow flies. He ends up probably in what we call northwest Saudi Arabia today. If you know your geography, the Red Sea comes up and then has two little fingers that go. This is the one that goes east, the Gulf of Aqaba, A-Q-U-A-B-A, probably right by there. But the big news is he's at a distance from Pharaoh. Pharaoh can't get to him. What went wrong? We're left to speculate, but here's what I think. Violence is never Jesus' way. If it's to happen at all, it is a very, very last resort. In fact, when Jesus was being arrested, Peter, one of his closest disciples, pulled out his sword and sliced off the ear of a servant, and Jesus healed that ear. And he said, Peter, put away your sword. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. In any case, Moses has something to learn and so he's out in the desert of Midian. Here's what happens, verses 16 and 17. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the trough, and filled the trough to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Moses has a heart for the, the vulnerable, the weak. They want to water their flock, they ought to be able to water their flock. Well, these young ladies go home and tell their dad what happened. When they came to rule their father, he said, why have you come back so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, what, where is he then? Why is it that you've left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. So he gets an invite. The next two verses are going to uh, be compressed. They're going to explain 40 years of Moses' life. Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave him his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to her son and named him Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses is going to spend 40 years herding sheep on the backside of the desert. What's he doing? Well, he's herding sheep. This is a guy that is eventually going to lead the nation out of slavery. What's he doing for these 40 years? He's learning to wait on God. And that's a tall order. Especially for us in our culture who like to get things done. If you read the Psalms, 
you will see time after time after time the psalmist talking about crying out while waiting on God. But when do we wait on God? When we don't have any other options. And something happens in that waiting that we're broken and we learn a trust and dependence that we can't get any other way. When I graduated from college, I ended up working with a mission organization called Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as CREW. One of the things we had to do was raise our own support. And by anybody's measure, mine went comparatively quickly. And yet, I remember the agony of waiting. Where will the people come from? After that, we went into the pastorate, and I've done three pastor job searches. I hope I never have to do another one because they involve a lot of waiting. You send out your resume, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and there's nothing you can do, and it's so hard. At least it was for me. Then finally, when we came to have children, we had a miscarriage. That put me on alert that these things can happen. Had our older son, Chris, and then had two more miscarriages before having our younger son, Drew. And so the drill on that is Hope took a pregnancy test. It was positive, but we had to wait to six or eight weeks where you go check for a heartbeat. You wait and you wait and you wait. And twice I went back to be disappointed. Something happens in waiting that can't happen anyplace else. Wondering. Are you waiting on God right now? If you are, I don't want to be too presumptuous, but I think God's got you right where He wants you. Because see, there's something that happens in the waiting. God does something on us, breaks us, and it teaches us, and, and there's, some, there's something about learning. Only God can do what He's going to do. And Moses will spend 40 years back and forth herding sheep in the desert. Yet God's getting him ready for something significant. As long as we're talking about waiting, remember, we're, we're on the backside of a Midian desert now, but 200 miles away, Israel is enduring 400 years of slavery. And they're waiting, and they're wondering, how long? How long? Here's what the end of... Chapter 2 says, says, Now it came about in the course of these many days the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. Now verses 24 and 25, listen to these verbs, if you will. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did he forget? No, that's a metaphor for God's getting ready to act. God saw the sons of Israel and took notice of them. He's aware he's involved with them. It seemed like a long time if you're part of the 400 years. But God was involved. God was aware. God knew. And God planned to act. And so we've got what's going on in Midian a man having to learn some things about waiting on God and doing things God's way. And uh, we've got a people over here, a nation who's been suffering under slavery. 
In the next chapter, God's going to bring this man back, and he's going to be the leader. Remember, he was born into an Egyptian household. He knows the language. He knows the culture. But see, before, before he did that, Moses needed a course. How long of a course? A 40-year course. And you wait on me. You don't march ahead of me. God's going to take that failure, and he's going to redeem it. So we're wrestling with this question, what's our hope in the face of failure and rejection? Remember, Moses had that. He's an on-the-run fugitive. He's a wanted man. The king of Egypt's got to die before he can go back. But here's what we found out. God uses our failure and rejection to prepare us for his purposes. That's exactly what he did with Moses. God uses our failure and rejection to prepare us for his purposes. So let me go back. February of 1982, I have received rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter. And I have worked and I have gotten a good grade point in chemical engineering and, and I, I had a plan and I, I don't know what to do. Well, Texas A&M had just started an MBA program and I thought, well, it's a letdown, but okay. I'll apply and I get accepted. I couldn't see it then, but let me tell you why that was critical. Because see, that, that January of 82, second semester of my senior year, I moved in with a guy. And I had been a Christian about three years, but kind of back and forth, up and down in my faith. Uh, this guy discipled me in every sense of the word. We, we ate together, we studied together, and we would come home at night, and he would teach me the Bible. I began to change, I began to grow. Not only that, we were living in this off-campus apartment. Right across the street, there was a man who owned a bunch of condominiums, and he was our faculty sponsor for Campus Crusade. And so he would rent to a bunch of Christian guys. And so for the first time, I enter dynamic Christian community. I, I find friends like I've never found before, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. And then this guy who discipled me, he was my, we were both seniors. He has a brother who's a freshman. And this brother's having back pains, and he starts spitting our blood, and he goes to the campus Health clinic, they know it's an infection. It doesn't go away. It goes down to Houston, and they say, no, I, I think it's uh, testicular cancer that's come up through your back and is now in your lungs. He went down to Houston. He was supposed to do it. It's only an, an hour, hour and a half from Houston to College Station. He was supposed to be back that night. No one was in the apartment. There was a collect call. This is before cell phones. I was the only one in the apartment. I accepted charges. Chris, where are you? We banter back and forth, and he tells me, Andy, they, the doctors think that Cancer over 90% of my torso. He's a freshman in college, 19 years old. That proved to be a death sentence. He would die shortly after Thanksgiving. But I'm usually good with a comeback, but I had nothing to say. You know what this young man said to me? 19 years old, grounded in the Word of God. He says to me, Andy, it's okay. God's in control. The people that blew my mind blew my mind. Maybe, maybe this Jesus is real. So I end up staying at A&M for two and a half more semesters and get my MBA and continue to grow in my faith. And I won't go through the details, but God calls me on staff with crew. I do that 15 years and I go into the pastorate for the last uh, 20 plus years. How, how, how'd, that, how'd that start? Failure. <laughs> Rejection. How many, remember, remember, did you count them? Five, five, five. Five rejection letters. Man, you're done. No, 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 no. God's just getting started with me. And, and, you know, and I, when I was with crew, I ended up going to seminary, and you had to do one of these diagnostics, and you, you meet with a counselor, and we did this all over the phone. And you know what this guy asked me? The first question he asked me when he gets my diagnostic, Andy, what were you thinking doing engineering? Yeah, great question. I have no idea. 
I had a degree in it. I had job offers, and I hated it. What were you thinking? I don't know. I was 18 when I made the decision. But God used that failure to get me where I need to be. Now, if you're an engineer and God's called you there, God bless you. We need you. So it's not a wrap on that. It's just saying God uses the failure to get us where we need to be. I've been doing this ministry thing 35 years. I've had people who failed in marriage, and they think they're done. And you're just getting started. God can redeem that. I've met people that dealt addiction issues, alcohol, drugs. Wasted my life. Man, if Jesus, can, Jesus can redeem that. I've met people who've gotten into addiction issues and gotten into crime because of it to support it, and they've been in jail, and I'm done. No, no, God can redeem that. I've seen it. I've seen parents and children ripped apart. I get, it's, no. God redeems our failures for his purposes. Are you one who's going to be haunted by rejection, by failure? God can redeem that. In fact, do you know we serve a Savior who understands failure and rejection? I'm not going to turn there, but John 6, the crowds have been gathered. And this is what they call the bread of life discourse. And basically, Jesus, Jesus metaphorically says, you're going to really need to take part in me. In the end of John chapter 6, a bunch of guys say, you know, um, Disciples, I said, yeah, I, I, that's, I don't think we're going to do that. that. That's too hard. And they walked away. People who had followed Jesus, they walked away. And Jesus turns to Peter and some of the other disciples say, hey, do you guys want to leave too? No, no, we'll, we'll think we'll, 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 where we're going to go. But Jesus felt that. People got to know him thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't think, you're not who I thought you were. But the ultimate rejection is that the last week of Jesus' life, on Sunday, he comes into Jerusalem, and they're cutting off palm, palm branches, and, and they're putting down, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're, they're proclaiming him a king. And five days later, they turn on him, and they say, crucify him. And Pilate says, the, the Roman prefect says, look, I, you know, I, there's, a, there's this deal. I, I turn, turn loose one criminal. I got this guy Barabbas. He's, I won't go into it, but he's really bad. And you got Jesus. Uh, one of them has to die and one of them let go. And, and, and they choose Barabbas over Jesus. That's rejection, people. And you know what God did out of that, though? He purchased your salvation and mine. And, and Philippians says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess to this Jesus. Why? Because he endured rejection. Failure. So as a little boy, I swam. I swam the backstroke. I was pretty good in age group. My only problem was on the turn, they changed the rules, but back then it was kind of complicated. You had to touch your wall on the turn and flip your legs over, and I wasn't very good at it. So I was coached by a guy who was an all-state swimmer in the backstroke. So one morning, before practice, he gets in the water with me. He doesn't stand on top. He gets in the water with me. He says, look, Andy, you need to put your hand here on the wall. You need to take your head back, and you need to bring it, you know, and he took my legs and brought them right over, and here's what you do underwater. I mean, he, he got right in there, and he, and he walked me through that turn. Here are the flags. You count off the flags, and you know, Jesus has gotten in the water, gets in the water with us in our failure. He's not one of them coaches that stands up and says, hey, here, here what you need. No, no, no. He hops down in the water with us. Get failure? You're looking at it? You're not alone. Jesus wants to be with you. You waiting on God? 
struggling in the process, the Holy Spirit wants to manifest Jesus so you can gain what you need to get and you can't get anyplace else because Jesus gets in the water with us. Because that's true. Failure isn't final. God redeems it for His purposes. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that uh, Moses is one of many examples in the Bible that failure is not final with you. you. You redeem it. Thank you that we have a Savior who understands. He's not standing off at a distance. He's not out and about. But, 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 but he experienced his own rejection. He was treated as a criminal. He had people turn on him in a matter of five days, Hosanna to crucify him. Lord, thank you we serve that kind of Savior who understands our failure and rejection. We thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen.